Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you guys are doing good. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to get there in just a second. Uh, first, I want to start out with a story here this morning. When I was in high school, uh, I, I worked for a local construction company there in Broken Bow. Just a couple of summers. I wasn't very good at it. You've heard me talk about my construction work um, from time to time. Um, every day that I was there, I was completely out of my element. I wasn't I wasn't a strong construction worker. It didn't come naturally to me. So this one summer, we were there building a house, and uh, it was pretty early in the process. We were laying the, the, the footings and kind of building up the foundation with the cinder blocks there, and uh, we were down in the hole, and, and my boss told me to get up out of the hole and run over there to the bobcat and pick up a pallet full of block and drive them over here close to the hole. And I, I told him, I said, I, you know, I don't think this is a really good idea. And, and he used several choice words and told me to get my skinny out of the hole and uh, get over there and pick up those. And, and, and so I was a little scared of him. And so I got up out of the hole and I ran over there to the bobcat. And, uh, and if you don't know what a, what a bobcat is, it's, it's one of those uh, machines that they use on those construction sites often. And, and, and it's got the, the arm out there. You know, you pick up things, you dig things, you move things. And, and it's got the two handle levers and the foot controls to move all the arms. And some of you guys who drive that stuff, you could explain it a lot better than I could but uh, I, I don't know this stuff well. And so I knew it was a bad idea. He knew it was a bad idea. I knew that he knew it was a bad idea. And so I knew that something was going to go bad. So I get up out of the hole. I, I drive over there. I get on. And he's offering instructions from the bottom of the hole. Everybody else has stopped doing what they're doing. They're watching me. And he's telling me, hey, turn the key and do this and that. And, and this is how you do it. And, and those are the foot pedals. And, and he says, now line your forks up and drive up underneath the pallet. He said, just pick it up six inches off the ground. I'm like, okay. He said, Chris, listen to me. Six inches. I said, okay, I can do that. I'd seen them do that before, and so I thought, okay, I can, I can handle this. I'm confident. I'm ready to go. So I, so I drive in there. I get it. And then you got you to gotta pick it up with the foot pedals, and there's no, like, there's no like instructions on there. Um, so I'm just trying to figure it out. And so I pick it up uh, six inches off the ground, maybe you know, closer to 18. Maybe it wasn't six. Maybe it was closer to 18. And so when I picked it up just a little bit higher off the ground, um, it, it tipped over. So, so the, the pallet there tipped over and my back wheels were off the ground like that, which is fine, right? I mean, I've seen them do that all the time. They, that happens all the time on those things. And so, and so he's yelling at me instructions. He says, just drive right back under it. It'll be fine. Drive right under it. I don't know what I did wrong, but I did the exact opposite of what he told me to do because I, instead of coming up under it, I came backwards and now I'm facing the ground like this and my wheels are back up higher. So now I'm panicking a little bit. I don't know what to do. I got my controls here. I got my feet on the pedals, which was a, a big mistake for me. I shouldn't have had my feet on the pedals. And I'm just about ready to do a face plant. And so I figured, I'm just going to figure this out. I'm going to get back up underneath it. And so I started to do things. And I don't know what I was doing, but I started to do things. And, and what happened was this big mechanical machine turned into a bucking bull. That's what happened. I, this, this thing started to buck 
back and forth. And I had a whole pallet full of cinder blocks on there. And when I, whatever I did, it was awesome. I threw the pallet of cinder blocks up in the air and then I came down. And, and when I did that, the, the, the cinder blocks, they hovered right at my eye level. Like they just, they just hung out in midair and we bounced down the pallet still on the forks and then we came back up and slammed into those, that cinder block that was coming down and it just turned into like this explosion of pallets and blocks and, and I'm just afraid for my life as these things are raining down on me. I know my boss is like speed dialing his lawyer because he knows a lawsuit's coming and I just couldn't get the thing stopped. I'm bucking and every time I'm doing this, I'm making it buck more and I'm just going crazy like this. He's screaming at me, let go, don't touch anything. Just let go. Finally, after what felt like five minutes, I, I finally let go, the dust settled there's just debris everywhere. It just, it just looked like a tornado came through. And the arms with the bobcat, the fork thing, was extended as high as it could possibly go. A little higher than six inches. And I remember, I remember sitting there, composing myself for a second, thinking, I don't belong here. I do not belong here. I didn't quit. I wasn't fired either. I was never asked to drive the Bobcat again. But I knew that I didn't belong there. They laughed and, and I laughed and we just kind of sort of kept on building and it was kind of a funny moment. Uh, but, but that was the moment that I realized that I just don't belong. And that summer was the summer that I got really comfortable being the one who didn't fit. The odd man out, the, the one who, who didn't, quite know, who couldn't quite keep up, who didn't quite fit in, and it felt a little strange. But it wasn't just the bobcat incident that summer that I realized that, that I didn't fit. It was every day in a thousand different ways that summer that I realized it was going to be different for me. Because that summer there, working with those guys, I, uh, it became real clear, real fast, that I was the only one who wasn't going to cuss. I was the only one who wasn't using that kind of language, and it was strange. I was the only one who didn't chew or smoke, and it became a little bit strange. It was, it was odd. I was the oddball. Now, don't get me wrong. I loved the smoke breaks, okay? Those guys were like, hey, it's time for a smoke break. Right on. I would just sit down and wait, and I loved those smoke breaks. In fact, I would encourage them to keep on smoking, right? <laughs> But I was the only one who wasn't going to smoke or chew, and so it, it kind of left me on the outside a little bit. On Fridays, after the end of the workday there that summer, when uh, the party would get started right after work, and, and they would buy uh, you know, beer and alcohol for everybody, I would sit around that little group there, and I would drink the rest of my lukewarm Pepsi from earlier in the day. Um, I, I, just, I just didn't fit. I wasn't trying to fit in. In fact, there came a point there after getting to know those guys and them getting to know me that if I would have tried to fit in, it would have felt a little bit strange. I remember one time uh, we were coming back from a, from a place. They stopped at a gas station. They, they went in. They got their, their beer, and they were you know, ready to take it back to the place and so they could start drinking, and one of them got me a Gatorade, and it was like, it was like that moment, you know? Uh, they got me a Gatorade because he knew that it just, it just wasn't going to fit for me. So I just kind of embraced it. 
I just kind of embraced it. They labeled me as like the, the, the good little Christian boy on the job site. So I went with it. I just kind of just played it up a little bit. And so I started asking them Bible trivia questions. I did. We'd be in there uh, sanding the, the sheetrock. Have you ever done that? That's the worst thing imaginable. I believe there'll be sanding of sheetrock in hell. Um, it's just the ter- worst thing ever. And uh, so we're there sanding sheetrock, and I'm asking them Bible trivia questions, all, just anything that I can think of. And, and uh, like, uh, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? And they're, they're guessing, uh, two weeks, and this and that. I'm like, you're so stupid. Uh, you know, 100 years, right? 100 years to, to build the ark. And uh, no, it doesn't. And so I had to bring my Bible the next day and show them. And that's what it said. And I'm asking them all sorts of questions. Who was the oldest man in the Bible? And, and uh, how did David kill Goliath? And they said, well, that one's easy. It's the rock. And it hit him in the head and it killed him. I said, no. Uh, David grabbed Goliath's sword and chopped his head off. No, he didn't. And so I'm bringing the Bible and I'm showing them. And I wasn't preaching at them. I was just, you know, Bible trivia. And then I'd prove that I was smarter than them. Um, so I remember driving back from a place one time. There was a guy there that I was driving with. His name was Dave. And uh, he started talking about his life and his marriage a little bit to me. And, um, and, and he said, hey, when you're at church this Sunday, because he, he assumed that the only time that we can pray is in church. He said, hey, when you're at church this Sunday, uh, could you pray for my marriage? And, and my initial thought was like, dude, I'm 17. I don't have a clue how to pray for your marriage. But, but I told him I would. And it was, it was just this odd sort of thing where, where I was there, but I never fit. It, it, I was the strange one. I knew it. They knew it. We all kind of just embraced it, but, but it was there. I was the odd one. I didn't fit. This morning, I want to talk to you about this one thought. If you're a believer, I want you to hear me. If, if you aren't a believer, if you haven't committed your life fully to Jesus, and maybe this morning you're thinking about it, you're, you're, you're considering what a life of surrender to Jesus would look like, I, I need you to know what you're signing up for here this morning. Here's the thought that I want to focus on this morning. It shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Listen, we're in this Stranger Things series. We've talked about a lot, all sorts of strange things, but, um, but now this morning, let's talk about us. We're going to talk about us, and I want to say it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Some of you are here this morning, and you know what it means to feel strange as a believer. You know what it means to sacrifice as a believer because you're an outsider. You know what it means when you just don't fit in. Maybe that, 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 um, that thought, maybe that reality of not fully fitting in and feeling strange or feeling like an outsider is leading you to second-guess some things this morning. I want you to know it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Maybe that, that thought of feeling like an outsider is, is beginning to cause you to compromise on some of the promises that you made to yourself and some of the promises that you made to God, I need you to know it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Maybe you're here this morning and the isolation of being a believer in your life, in your job, in your family, just wherever you are is getting to you and you don't feel like you want to be the odd man out anymore. You're getting tired of it all. You're getting tired of doing the right thing. I love what James says. He says, don't grow weary of well-doing. Because in the end, you will reap a reward if you don't give up. He said, don't get tired of doing the right thing. 
Don't get tired of taking the right stand. Don't get tired of representing Jesus well. Don't get tired of setting your defenses up against Satan and sin. Don't get tired of living a life of integrity. Don't get tired of reading your Bible. Don't get tired of doing right. Don't get weary in well-doing, he says. And sometimes what I love about that scripture is that there is an acknowledgement in that scripture that sometimes we will get tired, right? Sometimes we will get frustrated. Sometimes we will feel like an outsider and we'll feel like giving up. And James says, don't. Don't get weary in well-doing. At work, I'm tired of feeling like the strange one. In my family, I'm tired of feeling like the strange one. At school, I'm tired of feeling like the strange one. On weekends, I'm tired of feeling like the strange one. On the team, I'm tired of feeling like the strange one. As a believer, it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. It shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Let me look at, uh, or let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. This is what Peter is saying. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone. Everybody say cornerstone. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones. So he says this. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone. And then there in verse 5, he says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Verse 6, the scripture, and the scriptures, he says this, as scripture says, um, and in this next portion, Peter is quoting from Psalms 118. He's also referencing a sermon that he preached back in Acts. And so he's kind of pointing back to a couple of different scriptures uh, in this. He says, as scripture says, and he quotes, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor, has, the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Verse 8, and, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. I want to show you what Peter is talking about here in this cornerstone stone building illustration. Number one, he's saying that Jesus is the living cornerstone. He's saying that Jesus is the living cornerstone. And to understand what he's saying, we have to understand sort of the context of the day. In ancient quarries, back in Jesus's day, there were highly trained stonemasons that their job was to sit in the quarry and carefully look at, examine, and choose the stones that would be used in the building construction. So they didn't have those factories that would go and they would make the block, they would make the brick so that everything was completely square and the same. Um, they had to use some of those natural uh, block and, and stones and, and things. And so they had highly trained very smart people that would sit in these quarries and they would separate the stones. They would, they would choose the ones that were needed to be used in this construction. And in this process, no stone was as important as the cornerstone because the integrity of the entire structure depended on the cornerstone containing exactly the right lines. 
If the cornerstone wasn't exactly right, that was what the entire rest of the building and the structure was pointing back to, was measured in, was related to, was the cornerstone. If the cornerstone wasn't perfect, the entire building would be out of line. For that reason, builders spent hours and days inspecting and looking for and trying to determine which stone was right to be laid as the cornerstone. They inspected many stones. They rejected many of those stones until they found the perfect one. Now, not all of the rejected stones had to be just completely gotten rid of. Most of those rejected stones could be put somewhere else in the structure, but only the perfect one could be the cornerstone. It was God's mission, his plan, his heart, and his dream to build his church, to build his spiritual temple. The church, God knew, would not be able to stand unless the cornerstone was perfect. Are you understanding this? The church had no power to stand unless the cornerstone was perfect. The cornerstone had to be flawless. The cornerstone had to be pure. The cornerstone had to be right. It had to be strong. The cornerstone must be perfect. Everything else that is built is based on the integrity and the strength of the cornerstone. That's why Peter identifies Jesus as the living cornerstone. If we think about the church as as a spiritual temple, the cornerstone sets the standard. The cornerstone offers the strength. We just sang about it just a little bit ago. Christ alone, cornerstone. Weak made strong because that cornerstone is strong. He's perfect, he's right, and he's able. Jesus is perfect. He's without spot or blemish. He's faultless. He's flawless. Jesus is righteous. He's holy in every way. Jesus is the only possible Savior that we could ever have because he's the only sinless man. Jesus is our living cornerstone. Everything in our life, everything in our church must point back to Jesus. Our ministries, every ministry that we have in this church must be built on Jesus because if Jesus, the cornerstone, is not the foundation, then it's not what God wants for us. It's going to fall. It's not going to maintain its structural integrity and it's going to crash. Our ministries must be built on Jesus. Our churches must be built on Jesus. Our marriage must be built on Jesus. Listen, there are lots of good books. There's lots of good marriage advice. There's lots of good relational like things and strategies that you can employ to have a good, happy, healthy marriage. But if it's not built on the cornerstone and the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, it's not going to last. Our families must be built on Jesus. He is the living cornerstone. We have to look to Jesus to decide how we're going to parent our kids. We have to look to Jesus to decide how we're going to raise our kids. We have to look to Jesus to decide what sort of time and financial priorities we are going to place on our kids. We have to look to Jesus to determine what sort of future we're going to prophetically speak into and call out of our kids. 
Jesus is our living cornerstone. So Peter says, Jesus is the living cornerstone. Let's look again at verse 5. It says, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So number one, Jesus is the living cornerstone. Number two, you are living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone. You are stones that God is using to build his church. But in order to understand this analogy all the way through, we have to be clear on something. You are a living stone. Praise God. Because he he sees us, he chooses us, he uses us, right? You are a living stone. Praise God. You are not the cornerstone. Praise God, right? You are a living stone. You are not the cornerstone. You are not perfect, right? You are not without blemish. You are not the gold standard. You are not faultless. You are not flawless. You are not strong enough. You are not good enough. God isn't building anything on me. Thank God. God isn't building anything on you. Thank God. Because we just, we couldn't. We don't determine the line. We just get in line. We don't set the standard. We just get in line and try to line up with what God is doing. Too many people and too many preachers think that they are the cornerstone. That's why their lives and their churches are so messed up. Too many people are are, are trying to build their own legacy, trying to build their own kingdom, and their kingdom is going to fall. The more they build, the more those flaws are exposed. However, though flawed as we are, when in alignment with the living cornerstone Jesus, we're allowed to play a very important part. Just because we have been rejected as the cornerstone doesn't mean we have been rejected as living stones. Okay? Just because we're not the cornerstone, just because we're not the basis of the whole thing doesn't mean that God doesn't have a place for us. We're living stones, though not the cornerstone. Now, to understand your place in the kingdom of God and in this world we live, we must understand the conflict here, okay? Because everything that we do, everything that we attempt ought to be to come into alignment with the cornerstone. We need to represent the cornerstone, point back to the cornerstone, maintain the integrity of the cornerstone. And so, and so we have to understand where we fit, but in order to do that, we have to understand where Jesus fits. So God chose Jesus to be the living cornerstone, but there were some who rejected him. The religious leaders of that day rejected him. Many um, people who are seeking spiritual enlightenment of today reject him. And so we got to look at this, verse 7. It says, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected, which is Jesus, has now become the cornerstone. The religious leaders encountered Jesus. They listened to Jesus. They, they examined Jesus. They confronted Jesus. They faced uh, uh, the questions of who is Jesus. And after all of that, they looked at Jesus and everything that he said and everything that he did, and they, they rejected him. They said, no, he's flawed. He's damaged. He's dangerous. 
He's not strong enough to be the Messiah. He's not right to be the Messiah. And so the religious leaders of the day essentially acted as the, the, the master stonemasons. They examined Jesus and they said, nope, it can't be him. So what were some of the flaws that they saw in Jesus? Why, why was Jesus not a good fit for them? Well, why did they look at Jesus and determine that, that he could never be the Messiah. Well, there's a couple of things that I'd like to talk about here this morning. Number one is, is because Jesus offended their traditions. Jesus had the nerve to question and really disregard their religious traditions. If you read through scripture, you can find some of the things that, that particularly upset the religious leaders. Jesus had the nerve to heal somebody on the Sabbath, right? I mean, think how evil he must be. He had the nerve to speak to a sketchy Samaritan woman who, who kind of had a bad past and a bad, uh, 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 you know, relationships, who was sleeping around, but he had, he had the nerve to speak to her. Imagine how awkward it was when Jesus grabbed a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple, right? Grabbed a whip and he went and he just drove the money changers out of the temple. Jesus was offending their traditions, the religious leaders of that day had elevated their traditions to the same level as the word of God. And Jesus just said, I, I have no time for this. We're not going to do this. I'm not going to play this game. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And so in this scripture, Jesus is elevating the law of God, but at the same time, his actions are rejecting their traditions. Jesus didn't say, I come, I've come to legitimize all your traditions. He didn't say, I've come to elevate your traditions to the same level as the law. In fact, it seems that a lot of the time Jesus went out of his way to offend the traditions. And Jesus was rejected for it. He didn't fit. He was out of place. He was a stranger. But us as living stones, let us as living stones be a reflection of our glorious cornerstone. Let us be more concerned with what the Bible says than what tradition says. Let us be more concerned with the word of God rather than what has always been done. Let us never confuse our traditions with the gospel, especially those of us who spent a lot of time in the church, and that's me included. We, as, as people who have grown in the church, who have been a part of this a long, long time, we have the tendency to, to lean into this place where our traditions have just as much power and authority in our lives as the word of God, and we have to be careful with that. That was the very thing that got Jesus rejected, and it ought to be the very thing that we dedicate our own lives to. Number two, Jesus embraced sinners. Tax collectors of the day were essentially the organized crime ring, right? In Jesus' day, the tax collectors were like the mafia, and um, everything they did was criminal. Everything they did was a cover for some other kind of criminal activity. And so the tax collectors were bad dudes. They operated in theft and extortion. And the religious leaders and, and the people of that day were, were offended and irritated because Jesus hung out with them. Jesus was around them from time to time. Jesus even invited one of the tax collectors, Matthew, 
to follow him as a disciple. Jesus was surrounded by drunks, prostitutes, the homeless, and the hungry. And the religious leaders of that day saw this as a major flaw, a major flaw. Jesus was advancing the kingdom of God among those who needed the kingdom of God most. Again, let us as living stones be a reflection of the cornerstone. We as living stones cannot be afraid to engage in the culture that needs Jesus the most. We as living stones cannot be afraid to go where people are hurting. We as living stones cannot be afraid to do what Jesus did in the way that Jesus did it. But know this, it got Jesus rejected and so probably as living stones that are a reflection of the cornerstone, it'll probably do the same for us. Sometimes it feels strange to be the only believer in a group of sinners. I get that, but that's who Jesus was. And it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. It shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Number three, Jesus was directed by the Holy Spirit. He was directed by the Holy Spirit. From time to time, we see that Jesus, or, or every time, but, but from time to time, it's mentioned um, very clearly that Jesus was directed by the Holy Spirit. After Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. Scripture says he was directed by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he fasted for 40 days. And then at the end of his time of fasting, um, Satan came in and tempted him. Jesus was directed by the Holy Spirit to heal the sick and cast out demons. Jesus was directed by the Holy Spirit to embrace the, the, the horror of the cross. Jesus was directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to defeat the cross. If we listen to the Holy Spirit, if we listen to his leading and his directing in our lives, he will lead us into some awkward situations. Let me say this again. We, we allude to this from time to time. We even alluded to it last week when we were talking about Satan's attempt to hinder us and to derail us and come against us. If we listen to the voice and the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he will lead us into some awkward situations. He will lead us to have some awkward conversations the Lord will direct us to pray for people at what we would say inappropriate times. The Lord will lead us to have faith and to operate in faith and declare uh, uh, prophetic words and, and, and not necessarily in a thus saith the Lord type deal, but uh, to speak like prophetic life-giving words to people at times where we would rather just avoid it. If we listen to the Holy Spirit leading and directing our lives, he will lead us to those places. And if we are strong enough, if we are secure enough in the fact that we are living stones representing the, the living cornerstone, God will use us for awesome, mighty, and powerful things. Sometimes it might look strange. Sometimes we might feel strange. But as believers, listen, it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. Number four, Jesus was unchanging in his mission. Jesus was so laser-focused on the mission of the cross that, that the one time one of the disciples got in the way, he called him Satan and told him to get behind him. Like, I'm not dealing with this. I, I am 
going to the cross. That is why I came. When the religious leaders realized that he was focused on kingdom things and wasn't going to play their religious, political games, um, they rejected him. When they realized that Jesus wasn't going to be politically correct and respect their authority because of who they were and how they acted, they, they rejected him. When they realized that Jesus was here for one purpose and one mission, they rejected him. Let us be unchanging in our focus to advance the kingdom. Number five, he was unmoved by external pressure. Jesus was unmoved by external pressure. Now, I, I, made, I made a comment last week that uh, said, Satan doesn't care if you go to church just as long as you don't bring it home, right? Satan doesn't care if you go to church just as long as you don't bring it home. I, I think there, there might be a follow-up to that. Um, for the most part, the world doesn't care if you're a believer as long as you do what they want you to, right? The world doesn't care if you're a believer, but you better be willing to bend, to compromise, and to coddle every thought, feeling, belief, and action in anybody else. You can be a believer. They don't care. You just have to be a compromising believer. And Jesus was this great living cornerstone in this example that he was unmoved by external pressure. Unmoved by external pressure. If, if somebody was going to pressure Jesus into something, he would stand strong and follow God's will. Think about, think about the, the passage where, where Jesus fed 5,000 people with the five loaves and the three fish. We all know that story. Jesus prayed over it, multiplied it. He fed 5,000 men, but it equaled out to about 25,000 people that they got this divine master chef meal from Jesus, and they thought it was awesome, right? The church back then was no different than church today. If we have a picnic or a meal, more people will show up, praise the Lord, amen, right? And so what happened in this story is there was a follow-up to it. Because the next day, the crowds gathered again. And sure, they gathered to, to hear Jesus. And sure, they gathered to see the sick healed and demons cast out. But they had a brand new incentive to gather today. What was it? Food. Food. They wanted Jesus to feed them. And so they all gather, and nobody brought their stuff, and they were waiting for the disciples to say, uh, Jesus, send them away so they can go eat, and then Jesus intervene and feed us all with this miraculous, like, you know, master chef trick that Jesus did the day before. And Jesus stood there. When the massive crowd showed up, they wanted a chef, but Jesus was ready to reveal himself as a savior. They wanted food, Jesus was offering salvation, and so the crowds rejected him and went home. Look, Jesus, if you're not going to give me bread and fish, I'm walking. And Jesus said, okay. Okay. And he watched the crowds dissipate because they were demanding a chef when Jesus was offering a savior. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and says, are you guys going to go too? Are you going to leave? And the disciples were just awesome in their response. They said, we have nowhere else to go. Where are we going to go? But Jesus was unmoved 
by external pressure. Jesus didn't fit their need for a convenient savior. He was unmoved by it. And and we as, as believers need to understand that we don't serve Jesus as a convenient savior. We don't serve Jesus as a genie in the bottle who swoops in to take away all of our problems magically. We serve Jesus as a life-giving Savior. Let us be a reflection of our living cornerstone, unmoved by external pressures, whether that be from family, friends, society, neighbors, doesn't matter. Let us surrender to Jesus and not those external pressures. We don't follow out of convenience. We don't follow Jesus out of convenience. We follow him out of surrender and sacrifice. It might feel strange. We might be the odd one out, right? We might look or begin to look more uh, silly, backwards, or intolerant, but it shouldn't feel strange for us to feel strange. Number six, Jesus understood the culture, but he wasn't swept away by it. Jesus was the master at using culturally relevant stories. He called them parables, but they connected to everyone. He understood the culture. He moved in culture. Jesus knew what he was doing. He didn't separate himself from the culture, but he wasn't driven by the culture either. Think about our culture and the time that we're in right now. It seems odd and confusing. We're at a time right now in, in which it's almost impossible not to Uh, be swept up in the current political culture, right? Or the current political tornado, man, that that is reaching a fever pitch here in the last 10 or so days. You read things all the time, you you talk about this all the time, but you're guarded in who you talk to, who you talk about it to. Um, Questions are, are, can you vote today and still be a believer well, what if I vote for her? Then, I mean, I get kicked out of heaven, right? What if I vote for him? Then I get kicked out of heaven. What if I vote for a third party? Then I, you know, and, and everybody is, is really trying to figure out where they stand or, or what to do or, or, or who to vote for and, and, and how to play it close to the chest. I'm not going to tell anybody who I'm going to vote, but I'm going to do this. Look, I, I, want, I want to say this. We have to understand the impact of this election. We have to prayerfully consider what the Holy Spirit would have us do. We have to understand how God's hand has been on our nation from from its foundation and where God's hand is on our nation today. We have to elect the right leaders. This is important. We have to keep praying about this. Keep keep asking God to to intervene in miraculous ways. But, But I want you to know that we have to stop looking for a political savior. We won't find one. And and everybody who threatens to leave the country if this person is elected or threatens to leave the country if this person is elected, all they're doing is looking for a political savior. You will not find a political savior. Back in Jesus' day, they were looking at the Messiah as a political savior. They wanted a political savior. And Jesus says, you're not getting one. Our king is Jesus. Our savior is Jesus. Our captain is Jesus. And look, we know, scripture tells us that ultimately he still is in control. He is still in control. 
in spite of all the, the media outlets, in spite of all of the, 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 the fear that's going on in regards to the political stage, Jesus is still in control. And we can trust him. Jesus existed in the culture as a stranger who fully understood it. Let's finish this portion out. Verse 9. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Verse 11 says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from the worldly desire that wage war against your soul. The Amplified Version says it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers. I urge you as aliens and strangers to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your soul. Think about this. You weren't created for this world. You weren't designed to fit in. You weren't made to live in and exist in an earthly kingdom. You were made to reflect and resemble the living cornerstone that the world rejected. And if the world was so quick to reject Jesus, why are we so desperate for the world to accept us? Do we think that we're going to make Jesus look better than he made himself look? Do we think it's our job to, to knock off the rough edges of Jesus because there's this part over here that's a little bit offensive that, um, that you know what, it doesn't really sit well today, so let me, let me change that up a little bit. If the world rejected Jesus, why are we so surprised when we feel like we don't fit? As believers, our desire shouldn't be to fit, but to represent. It shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. When I was in Africa a couple years ago, it felt strange. I was there, I was a stranger, I was a foreigner, I was an alien. It felt strange. And being there as a foreigner, as a stranger, I didn't want to offend anybody. I was careful to, to be kind, to be nice. I wasn't interested in offending any, anybody, but I wasn't trying to fit in either. I wasn't trying to, to act like I was from Benin. I wasn't trying to embrace things that, that were not me because I knew that this is just a temporary thing. I'm not gonna be here for long. If you're a believer, you exist in this moment, today, in 2016, as a foreigner, as a stranger, as a temporary 
resident, as an alien. So don't be surprised when you feel like a foreigner, when you feel like a temporary resident. Don't be surprised when you feel like in your heart, your spirit is crying out for something more because you weren't designed for this. You were designed for more. Stand your feet all across this place. Maybe you're here and you've tried as hard as you could to fit. You've tried as hard as you can to find your place. You've tried as hard as you can to find acceptance. But you realize maybe for the first time this morning that that unsettled part of you is because you weren't created for this place. That with the fear of everything else that's going on, there's that place in your heart that says, even still, I'm a temporary resident. Even though it's my duty to go out and vote and pray for my country, I'm a temporary resident. This is what I was created for. And in my thoughts, in my prayers, in my feelings, I, I, I see and I sense that, that I am a part of the minority. It's fine. As long as I'm in alignment with Jesus. Maybe you're here and you feel like something is wrong because it feels strange to be a believer. But you're understanding that it shouldn't feel strange to feel strange. In fact, as believers, I, I think there comes a time that we need to embrace it. Lord, make me a, a living stone. Bring me in alignment with the cornerstone. Bow your heads and close your eyes all over this place. take just two minutes here and just give you an opportunity to allow your heart and your spirit to come in back into realignment with that living cornerstone. I want us to take two minutes and just do like a little bit of a self-examination here. Ask the Holy Spirit, where are those areas in my life that I've been trying to fit when I should be more concerned with reflecting Jesus? Where, where are those poles? Where, where are those tugs? Where are those things in my life that, that I, I work really hard to, to compromise and fit in and, and be accepted and, and, and to be like everybody else when, when those are the areas that I should be reflecting Jesus? Where are those areas? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, your people? Holy Spirit, would you point out those things in us that are not representing you well? Holy Spirit, would you forgive us for trying to be our own little cornerstone? Lord, would you help us to not try to line up to a political agenda or to a world's agenda or to a family's agenda, but to yours. Holy Spirit, would you forgive us for getting tired of representing you? Would you forgive us for, for growing weary 
and well-doing. Would you forgive us for doubting you? Would you forgive us for being frustrated with the life of a believer? Would you forgive us for compromising? Would you forgive us, Lord, when we come to that place where we think that this is all it is, that this is what we were created for? Would you forgive us when we lose perspective? Would you forgive us when we try to do it on our own? Holy Spirit, as we close this series on Stranger Things, let us be a people that fully embrace our call to know you, to love you, and to represent you well. Lord, us, your people, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your anointing. Fill us with your grace. Fill us with your mercy. God, we love you. God, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you because you have fully removed the pressure to fit because you completely stood out. Let us represent you well, Lord. Let us represent you well. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. And before we go, if there's anybody here and you need prayer, man, you just got a need, you got something going on in your life, you need prayer, I want you to, to not leave too quick, to come down. Our altar team is going to be here. We want to pray with you. If you just feel like the Holy Spirit's not done with you yet, we got plenty of time here between services. Give the Lord a chance to really speak to you. If he wants to speak something to you, don't leave. Stick around and listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. If you're ready to go, be blessed. We love you guys. Remember our uh, Trump or Treat offering is there in the back as you leave. Go ahead and drop some of that money in the offering. Um, embrace your calling this week. Don't let yourself feel strange when you feel strange. Love you guys.